Contractors brought protests to the Government Accountability Office more than 2,000 times last year, up by more than 20 percent from fiscal 2022. GAO sustained them at more than twice the rate of the year earlier, siding with contractors in about a third of the cases. For what's going on, we turn to the GAO's Managing Associate General Counsel, Kenneth Patton. Mr. Patton, good to have you back. Thank you. Good morning. Nice to be back. And it looks like there's been this, well, there has been a huge increase relative to, you know, the shrinkage of the last couple of years in protest cases. But there's actually one source of why this is up. Tell us what's going on. Sure. As you know, every year GAO reports the number of cases that it receives to Congress. And over the last five or so years, as you've mentioned, we've seen a trend of cases filed going down. This past fiscal year, we had a number of protests from a single procurement, and that is the National Institute of Health CIO SP4. That's one of four competing, one of four or five competing government-wide contracts for services and products in the information technology area. That's correct. The uh, CIO SP4 procurement, as you might imagine, was a very large procurement. Each one of the potential contract awards comprised $50 billion ceiling, and NIH intended to award over 200 contracts. And so when you have a very large multiple award procurement, such as the CIO SP4, a number of contractors want to participate because if you don't get in the initial award, you are precluded from receiving any of the task order awards that would be competed underneath that contract. These were filed at the pre-award stage, correct? That is, they didn't like the solicitation, so they took it to GAO. We actually had pre-award and post-award challenges. Back in the early part of the fiscal year, we had a number of contractors that challenged the methodology that the agency intended to use. And then we had a number of contractors who challenged their elimination from the competition. And we needed to resolve them throughout the fiscal year. And that's contributed to the number of cases that we had in total. We didn't resolve all of our cases dealing with CIO SP4 in one big tranche. It was throughout the year. Right. So sometimes you don't get to a case in a particular fiscal year, so there's a little bit of spillover. But you don't have much of a backlog either, correct? We don't have much of a backlog. That is correct. We have 100 calendar days to resolve each protest. And so it's 100 days whenever it's filed, whether it's in the prior fiscal year or the current fiscal year. And getting back to CIOSP4 then, of those protests that were filed for it, how many did you find in favor of the contractor and how many did you find in favor of the agency? Well, in total, we sustained over 119 protests. And the agency in that context would need to go back and take another look at its procurement and try to find a way to explain justify why it made the decisions that it did. In terms of what we didn't find or what we denied, it's a very mixed bag. There were a number of reasons why we resolved cases in certain ways. Some cases were resolved with what we call corrective action, meaning the agency decided to take the procurement back and take a look at it again and make another decision. And so when those cases are resolved through corrective action, they're dismissed rather than denied. We had a number of instances where contractors actually withdrew 
their protests, meaning that they took a look at the substance of their allegations and the agency's explanation and decided, you know, we probably don't have as strong a case as we thought we did, so we just withdraw the protests. There were some we decided that were untimely, meaning they didn't file within the required time frame under our regulations. GAO has very strict regulatory timing requirements, as you can imagine, because we only have 100 calendar days to resolve a protest. And so if you don't file within those timeframes, GAL is not going to consider your protest and it will be dismissed. So we had a number of cases in a, a wide variety of postures that got resolved differently. So it's a little bit of a challenge to say that we denied or were sustained because there, there's a mixed bag of how the ones that weren't sustained were resolved. We are speaking with Kenneth Patton. He is one of the managing associate general counsels at the Government Accountability Office. So to summarize, there were 2,041 cases closed in fiscal 2023 versus 1655 the year before. How many actually was the total that came in from CIO SP4? I think we had over 300 or so cases that came in from CIO as before, and our total number of cases filed in fiscal year 2023 was 225, and for fiscal year 22, it was 1,658. And so we typically try not to break down by specific procurements what numbers are ascribed to those numbers, because They get resolved in a number of different ways. We don't want to give false numbers or imprecise numbers. And so we we generally stick away from trying to say it was this number of that, that number of this. In the case of of a sustain, it's easy. We know exactly how many were sustained because we can look at the allegations and sum them up. But in the case of CIOSP, if it hadn't been for that blob of protests, you would have been roughly the same numbers, more or less, level with 22. We anticipate we might have had about a 3% increase over the fiscal year 2022. That's back of the envelope sort of sort of look. It's not something that we are required to include in our annual report, so we don't calculate those numbers. But just looking at the numbers from a high level, that's what we project that we would have seen an increase. But outside of that, then the trend has been pretty much down. And so what do you attribute that to, the long-term trend that protests seem to be trending down, you know, aside from that bump from one procurement? Sure. You know, that's a, that's a very good question, and we get that question often. Unfortunately, what we have to tell people is we can't answer a negative. And so we really don't know why people decide not to protest. There are a number of theories about why people are protesting. One theory is that government procurement spending is up. Over the last number of years, the government has spent a lot of money, a lot of it attributed to COVID, some of it attributed to Ukraine spending and other defense priorities. And so when you have an increase in spending, you're spending more on government contracts. And so the one theory is that contractors are getting a piece of the pie. And as a result, they're less likely to protest because they are getting something out of it. Another theory is that the government has seen an increase in the number of multiple award IDIQ contracts, which the CIO SP4 was one of. And once you get one of those contracts, you have a very good chance of receiving one of the task orders. And again, your incentive to protest is slightly reduced because the universe of potential competitors is small. 
and in that context, I will say that over the last five or six years, while the trend in the number of filings has actually gone down, the trend in the number of task and delivery order protests filed at the Government Accountability Office has been trending up. And that's significant because GAO is the only forum that can hear protests of task and delivery order contracts. And those are the vehicles that are awarded under these multiple award IDIQ contracts. And so we've seen an increase in a trend line, increased filings regarding task and delivery order protests. At the same time, we've seen a decrease or a trend going downward in the number of overall filings. So there could be more at play in these task and delivery order contracts. And some prime contractor or non-task order types of protests also can go to the Court of Federal Claims and not to GAO. So you might be not getting your full load versus the courts. That's absolutely true. That might be the case. I will say the number of filings that have gone over to the court versus the number or percent decline at GAO, there's a delta there. So you couldn't very well say that all the cases that haven't come to GAO have gone over to the court. They just aren't being filed either at GAO or at the court. So again, it's a hard answer to really explain why someone has decided not to file a protest. Is it also possible that the 1102 contracting workforce is getting better over time? Absolutely. It's entirely possible. You know, the contracting workforce may have may see a number of the issues and problems that are taking place and are making their procurements better. And one of the things that we track in GAO is what we call the effectiveness rate. And that is a measure of the number of sustains and the number of corrective actions that take place when people file a protest at GAO. And as you can see from our annual report, the effectiveness rate for this past fiscal year was 57%. And obviously, a lot of that is attributed to the CIO SB4 procurement. And if you look at the sustain rate over the number of years, it's been fairly consistent. And we would estimate that the sustain rate for fiscal year 23 without CIO SB4 would fall within that range of anywhere between 12 to 14%. So that's a measure of the procurement community looking at their issues, looking at the strength of their cases, looking at the potential mistakes and deciding to take it back and take another look at it. Kenneth Patton is Managing Associate General Counsel at the Government Accountability Office. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be here again. And we'll post this interview along with a link to that annual report on bid protests at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and what's the role of leadership in creating 
and shaping that culture. Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is, 
what do they need when they need it, and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus. Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. 
And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, 
find my own confidence and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.